that's somewhere with you. I, I do. Would you pray with me? Lord, also, if you have a Bible uh, or you want to turn your phone on to 2 Samuel, we thank you for that. If you're, if you're visiting with us today thinking, oh, gee whiz, couldn't wait to hear your financial report, that is, that is done to ensure that everybody knows they have a buy-in. This is your church. Um, and so my only role as a pastor, a pastor has no spiritual authority over you in the least. A pastor is one who just exegetes the Word of God, talks to you about the Word of God, takes you to the Word of God, and that is outside of encouragement and exhortation and sometimes rebuke and stuff. That's all our role is. So I'm one of you out there. So I get to, um, I'm in this journey as much as you and you're in it as much as I am. Um, what, what is interesting, I will say, which is statistically something I just want to brag on for a second. You know, Shale, I don't know if you get these emails or you go into like church websites where you kind of see, you know, what are the, what's a new idea, that kind of thing. There's, a, there's an average, I know we're a new church, right? We're, but there's an average that you typically have 40% of your, of your membership give. We hear like, um, I don't know if this means it's poorly because we're not pushing membership enough here, which we don't, but we are like, a, we have 120% of our membership giving. Isn't that weird? It, I mean, I, that blows your mind. And so I just sit there and think God is doing something in, in, a, in a great way. One of you is leading a godly life that's doing this. I mean, really, but no, I just thank you for what God is doing. I thank you for what you're doing in here. Um, let me pray for me this message and we'll get going. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thanks for the privilege of opening up your word. Lord, would you speak through me, please? Let the message that you would have designed land on the hearts of individuals in here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, if you are visiting, this is how we preach. We walk through verse by verse by verse. We have been in, since the beginning of the year in First and Second Samuel. We have jumped into Second Samuel. The gears have kicked in a little bit more. We're covering sometimes one or two chapters on a particular Sunday. Today we're going to hit two. We walk through verse by verse, and... You're not going to necessarily see any points or up there, or it's just really just breaking down scripture. Now, if you're walking in here today and you're, I don't want you to think you're being left out if you're in the middle of a series. Every time we open up scripture in here, I do so with the intent that we are, we don't assume you know the story. I was a senior adult minister at Idlewild for a little bit, you know, and I, I remember I was a college age pastor and then he said, Hey, could you do senior adults for a little bit? And I remember oh, I did a, I had a, a Bible study for senior adults. And it, so what happened is they, they, I mean, it was like a hundred and some senior adults came in, began teaching them. And at the end, what shocked me is a lot of them were walking out going, I never knew that. I never heard that before. I didn't know. And I'm thinking of the assumption. I thought you all knew all this stuff. You know, I thought you guys um, may have known. But the reality is oftentimes if we're not careful, you can be like me for the first 10 years of my Christian walk, nobody ever walked me through how to read the Bible. This didn't. It's kind of like, oh yeah, read the book of John. You know, go through the Bible in a year. And I didn't know what meant what, and I would read through it not knowing what these things are. So as I read through this, what we'll do is we'll hunker down, and this word means this, and verse verse means this. This is history, these two chapters. So don't expect to glean. I'm going to be gleaning a lot of life application out of this, but we will see what God does. It's interesting, is the, somebody said one time, Monroe was out in the lobby, he goes, you know your second service is totally different than your first service? It is true. If you ever want to ride, come for the first service, hear what goes on. I call that the practice run. And by the, the second service, it's a different message. It's just, it's crazy. Um, 
So, here we are. If you're brand new, don't have a clue what's going on, grab this and we'll, we'll be okay. There is the nation of Israel that is made up of 11 tribes, and then there is a nation of Judah that is made up of one tribe. Judah has a king. His name is David. Israel has a king. His name is Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was the son of King Saul. King Saul hated David. For 10 years, David has been on the run. David, we learned just last week, just took over the kingdom of Judah. He is now the, the king over Judah. There's been some infighting between um, a guy named Abner, who was from the house of Saul, and a guy named Joab, who's from the house of David. And they fought at each other, and one of them killed each other. Joab killed Abner. At any rate, when Abner dies, Abner worked for a mis- uh, <laughs> Ishbosheth, I keep wanting to say Meshibbeth, uh, you'll see why. Ishbosheth is the son of King Saul. Abner worked for him. Ishbosheth was a very weak king. He was the son of King Saul. Saul and all his sons, except for Ishbosheth, died in battle. Ishbosheth was not in battle. Why? Because he was weak. He may have been weak physically, we don't know, but he was a weak prince. And so now all his brothers are dead. King Saul is dead, so Ishbosheth becomes king over Israel. Abner, his right hand man, is the strong guy. He's the guy that Abner says, I'm going to hold you up, I'll keep you in power, I'll keep things at bay. Well, the problem is, Abner is killed by one of King David's men, Joab. You don't have to remember that name today, but Joab kills Abner. David is distraught. David didn't want this done. David orders a military funeral for Abner. He orders Joab, the guy who killed him, to walk in a funeral procession. And so here, we now unfold into a place where Ishbosheth, this poor, weak king, is holding a kingdom together of 11 tribes, Judah being controlled by King David. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all of Israel was, was dismayed. Let me tell you why his courage failed. Ishbosheth knew his only strength was in Abner. Abner was his only strong point. Abner was the one who would hold everybody together. Abner was the one who would hold these, these 11 tribes together. These 11 tribes were held together in a miraculous fashion. They really were. I, I don't know why they didn't just go to David when, because David was a natural born leader. I don't know why they didn't go to him, but they, nonetheless, they held on. There might have been economic reasons. If you go to a lot, a lot of Middle Eastern countries right now, you look at Iraq, or you look at Egypt, you look at Saudi Arabia, look at all those, those boundaries are not, some of the boundaries are natural. The sea of this, the river of this. But the reality is, most of them are colonial. You know, back in the colonies when Belgium and France and England ruled in that area, they would, they would carve off pieces of place and they would say, well, that's a, that's a country. And so what happened is when the colony left or, the, or, the, or the, the, the nation left that started the colony or they were kicked out, war broke out. And still to this day, if you go to Iraq, you would go to Iraq and you would have the Kurds to the north who have this beautiful flourishing evergreen ground with a lot of oil. You've got the Sunnis and the Shiites down south. They don't get along at all. 
Except when we go in there, they get together, right? And so they, none of them like each other, but it's one country. If you could divide that country up right now, they would do it, except there's one problem. Oil. No, that's too much oil over there. No, I need a seafaring city. No, I need this place. And so they're not going to give it up. So they retain their alliance. That's probably why these 11 tribes are stuck together following this weak king. But now all of a sudden, Abner is dead. Okay, look at uh, verse 2. And I'm going to summarize verse 2. I'm not going to read all that. I don't want you to feel like you've got to... If I start throwing out these names... And you're, you're new into this. I'm going to lose you, so I'm not. I just want you to remember the first part of verse 2, okay? Now Saul's son had two men who were captains. There were two guys. They were captains. They were junior officers. This is an introduction to them. Bank that in your mind. There are two guys out there who are about to enter the picture. Now jump to the next scene. I'm reading it how it's written. Here it is. I don't know why chronologically this is jumping into. Verse 4, there's an odd introduction to another character who has no relevance in what we're talking about today, but who's going to be playing into the scene later. Let's just bear with it. Read, let me just read this one verse. Here it is. Jonathan, the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. That is a, out of the blue, this one verse just pops up and introduces Mephibosheth. He's not going to come into play later. When he does later, I'll reintroduce him. But for now, all you have to remember is this. Here we are. David is king over Judah. Ishbosheth is king over 11 tribes in it known as Israel. There are two men who work for Ishbosheth who are junior officers who are about to do something. What are they going to do? You're going to see exactly what they're going to do. Verse 5. These two men, they're the, this is their names, the sons of this guy. This, they set out. And about in the heat of the day, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. When you see noonday rest, don't judge him and think, oh, this is that guy who has to take a nap. If I could take a nap every day, I would. But this is something that's very common in the area that if you, were, if you go to the Middle East, you are not walking around at noon at one o'clock. You do your business in the morning, and then you hunker down about from like, oh, from noon till about three o'clock. I mean, you don't do a thing. You just go and just rest under a tree. You go in a store. You do whatever. You get out of the place. Um, and again, the reason, just remember these two sons, these two guys. I don't want to throw these names out because, again, you're, if you, it's hard enough for people to remember Ishbosheth is the son of Saul. Is a, just remember there are two officers who work for Ishbosheth. They're about to walk into his palace. Verse 6. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then these two escaped when they came into the house. As he lay in his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arab all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and his offspring. 
Well, that's a nice gesture, right? <laughs> These two men sneak in. Here's Ishbosheth, a very weak king. Kill him, stab him in the stomach, kill him. Take off his head and take it as a trophy. Taking this trophy to go show King Saul. Only problem is, if any of you remember a few weeks ago, what happened? What happened when that Amalekite took the head of King Saul and brought it to David and said, "Look at what! Look, look at what, look, your enemy! Look, look, look what! Look what I've done! Look, here is his head." What did what did um, David do to that guy? He killed him. He looked at him and said, how could you touch the anointed one? How could you touch the king? And he kills him. Well, his reaction is going to be no different here. Um, verse uh, 9. But David answered these two, and he said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my... I love these speeches, by the way. These are chronicled in a great way. So imagine Clint Eastwood reading this, right? As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity... When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and I killed him at Ziklag, which was was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So he looks at these men, he says, Not a smart move. What you've done right here is you've dishonored a king. You've, just, you've dishonored. David had this amazing respect for this family who continually pursued him. He said, I'm going to have you killed, but I'm going to display your bodies. Remember, in Jewish culture, even today when you die, there's a, an immediate transfer of opportunity to bury you. You want to be buried. To leave a, a Jewish body unburied is a great insult. And so here's what's happening. He says, I don't even want these bodies. Not only are they not going to be buried, cut off their limbs, impale them, and stick them at the spring where everybody goes to get water and everybody sees what's going on. He did that for two reasons. Number one, to say they have no respect to go into ground, these two. And number two, to say, you see how these guys have done by cutting off their limbs, saying, if anyone tries to do this, this is going to happen to you. It was sending a message. David was incredibly distraught. Imagine these two captains as they walk in thinking, I don't understand. You're going to kill us for bringing the head of your enemy. David operates on a different system. Now, that's, ver- that's chapter 4. We're going into verse 5. Verse 5, David is about to get an anointing. This is his third time being anointed as king. You probably say, what were the other two? The, other, the first one would have been Samuel, the prophet, walked up to David when he was a child. Maybe he goes to the house of Jesse, he goes, I'm looking for this guy. And Jesse brings out all his, 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 his strongest sons. And he says, well, no, this is not the ones. It's not the ones. There's one more. He goes, you mean that runt in the field, that guy? Yeah, that guy, I guess. And that brings him in. And that was David. David was a shepherd. Samuel anointed him king over Israel. When David took over Judah and Israel would not join up together, the elders of Judah said, we anoint you king. Now, imagine the coronation of coronations of Israel. 
this is the biggest deal of Israel. Israel has come together, all 12 tribes, the 11 tribes of Israel, the one tribe of Judah, have come together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold. Now, wait. Um, I find no commentary on this speech. None. But see if it strikes you odd. These are guys from the 11 tribes that have come together and make this speech. It's kind of like... It just doesn't make sense. But here they are. Listen to the speech. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when King Saul was over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be the prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed King David king over Israel. The beginning of that was a speech that said this, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. I don't know, if I were David, I'd be thinking, well, that's a nice speech, I really appreciate it, but that hasn't been the case for the last 10 or 11 years when you guys have chased me everywhere I've gone. You put me in caves. I had to go live with the Philistines because you wouldn't let me in Israel. And now you're, oh, we're your bone and we're your flesh. We love you. This is an odd mix, but that's what people do. Remember, we're as corrupt and jacked up as they are. If we're not careful, you always have to be aware there can be murmuring. You always be careful not to catch yourselves in murmuring and and, in positioning. Like, you know, Brett was saying earlier, if you have any questions, just come see us. There we are. That's that way, even as a pastor, I'll say it. If you have a question, a problem, come see us. The very worst thing you could do And any pastor would say this, you want to shoot yourself in the foot, go to a pastor and say, well, the people are saying, you've lost all credibility. All of it. All I hear, if I say, well, you know, there are some people, then you've been talking antithetical to scripture, you're going behind a scriptural principle, I can't listen to you. I just, I, I can't. Murmuring, the people have murmured and conspired for 10, 11 years. And that's what they're doing. And so now they're saying, oh, you are our king. Behold, your bones are our bones. Your flesh is our flesh. We're here. David has got to be looking at this thinking, hmm, I wonder how loyal they are. This is a big army. Does anybody remember how many men were the, over the last month and a half, how many men have been loyally following as fighters and warriors for David? How many? 600. 600 men have been following David, ready to fight and die for him. You know what his army is now? 340,800 men. We know that number because it's mentioned in 1 Chronicles. He is now looking at an army of 340,800 men. He is now the superpower of the Middle East. His greatest enemy, oh yeah, you've got the Amalekites over here. They're a bunch of raiders. And you've got a couple other tribes. But the Philistines, those are the ones we've got to worry about. I wonder how many they can pull up. I don't think it matters so much. Remember, they have iron. They have steel. They have, they have the ability to make iron. They, they were a seafaring people, and they are the only people in this area that know how to use iron. That means their weapons are sharp, and I'll explain it in just a little bit. So what do you think? I'm like, man, this is a good army. 340,000 men. You could wreck havoc. You could do anything. But David knows this. His 600 men were fighting for everything they had. The big difference. When you're fighting, the, I feel like I'm picking on Iraq here, but remember the first invasion of Iraq, that desert storm? The Iraqis were 
surrendering to CNN news crews. They would see a CNN news truck and like a thousand Iraqi soldiers would go out and surrender to them. Why? Because they weren't fighting for Saddam Hussein. They're looking at each other going, I'm not dying for that clown. Are you dying for that? No, I'm not dying. No, so let's surrender. You go to a place where people fight to their death, they're going to fight differently. And so David's probably thinking, I'd rather have my 600 men who'd fight for everything they have than try to manage 340,000 men. And here it is, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Okay, I don't know, I went to Land of Lakes High School, but that means 70, right? 70 years old. Maybe thinking, wow, 70 years old during those times, people didn't live as long. Big misnomer, by the way. Life expectancy back then was lower because of a factor of childbirth, deaths, um, young, children who died of disease, and then adolescence of getting um, transfer of childhood diseases when they began to travel. The reality is, if you made it past 16 years old, you more than likely made it to 70-something. So oftentimes we always think, oh, people must have died at 30. You know, no. it, it, The reality is the, the, death, the, the life expectancy rate was brought drastically down because of the younger age. So he's 30 years old, though, going in. That's young. 30 years old. Ruling over an army of 300, almost 341,000 men of millions of citizens. That's young. Some of you guys remember when JFK took office? You're thinking, man, that guy was young at 40-something years old, right? Here in this place, he's going into reign. He's going to reign for the next 40 years. Verse 5, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned all over Israel in Judah 33 years. Verse 6, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Okay, this verse just pops out of nowhere. David all of a sudden is king. He's just had his great coronation. He's given this huge army. What on earth does this mean? What it means is this. David knew he had to have a capital city. He had to have it. Every region was probably battling for it. Judah's going, come down here. We've been your most loyal. Put the capital here. Remember, wherever you put the capital, money, trade. You have power. Which is why if you look at Florida and you think, I'm driving to Tallahassee every time I go to the capital. Well, that's where the power hub was when the state was formed. You know, now if you had planted, it'd probably be more in the middle of the state. But in this case, the people want a capital. And David looks and he says, well, I know Judah wants this and this tribe wants that and Benjamin wants... No, I am going to... We're going to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, this is what's important to remember, that has not been a Jewish city for 500 years. It's ran by the Jebusites. 500... That's a long time. That's double the, the, the history of America. This is... This would be like us staking claim to another country and saying, well, that's going to be our capital. We haven't been over there for 500 years, and especially in their lifetimes, they're thinking, this seems so far off. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to take this city. But beyond that, it's the most impregnable city. This is the Gibraltar of the Middle East. This is a city you cannot attack easily. This is a city on a hill. If you look through Psalms, it always refers to, to Israel as a city on a hill, city on a hill, city on a hill. You wanted to be at a hill because you had military prowess over your opponent. 
you could launch things at them, arrows and spears and, and hot balls of tar or whatever you want to throw down on them. They're not going to take them. And so now let's read this verse again. Let me read it again. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Remember, Jebusites have had it for 500 years. The inhabitants of this land. And this is why they said to David. I don't know if they sent it out in a messenger. I don't know if they've got some guy up there yelling it. I don't know. But he says, you're not going to come in here. We could pull out the blind and the lame and they're going to fend you off. You couldn't even attack us if we just left ourselves to the blind and the lame. Thinking there's no way David can come in here. Verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Now, wait a minute. If you're thinking, city of David? What do we call Bethlehem? Behold, born in you in the city of David. You're thinking, what does that mean? Jerusalem's the city of David. Bethlehem's the city of David. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say... Take a President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt was born in this city, resided in this city, and died in this city. Go to all three of them, where are they going to be called? The city of Roosevelt. The town, oh, this is where the town of Roosevelt. Oh, really? Yeah, he's born here. Where the town of Roosevelt? He died here. Where the town of Roosevelt? He ate here. You know, that, they're the towns. Of, this is what it means by the city of David. Verse 8, and David said on that day, Remember, he's got his men together here. Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So what he says is is this. He said, um, whoever climbs up the water tower and gets up this water tower, which, by the way, is interesting. 500 years ago, there was no water tower. They couldn't find it. About 80 years ago, they found the water tower. And um, you're always probably thinking, how's that happen? Remember, as things go down in the earth, the earth kind of consumes. So as you go down a little bit, you find things a couple hundred years old. You go down a little bit more, 500 years. Go down a thousand years. So these archaeological digs, the city of David that we know as Jerusalem is sunk under the current city. So you have to, like if you go to these historical spots, you always notice you're going lower to look at them. If you go to the Roman Forum, you got to step down off the street to go look at the Roman form because it's sinking. And so there was a water channel that David knew. He Maybe he got intelligence by it. We don't know. But apparently there was a way in. He said, whoever takes that city and goes up to the water tower, you're the commander of my army. So I, did you catch the humor in this? I don't know if I heard one of you chuckle. You might have caught it. David said, whoever gets up the water tower, um, would you be kind enough to attack the lame and the blind for me? And so what he's doing is throwing it right back in their face. And uh, verse 9, let's keep reading. And David lived in a stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city around from the Milo inward. You're probably wondering, what's Milo? I had to look that up myself. It was a 1,500 foot rock. 900 feet deep. That, by the way, wasn't discovered until about 40 years ago. That sucker sank too, I guess. You know, and all, that was called fulfillment. It was a stronghold. It was such a strong foundation they built. They only had to build three sides to a home or a building because they just attached it to the Milo to the stronghold. It's kind of interesting, by the way, when you think about this. If you're reading this in the 1800s, you have no idea what a Milo is. Isn't that crazy? How many times when you look at Ziklag up till up till two months ago, 
the city of Ziklag was never confirmed by, um, by archaeology till two months ago. So we're actually living in a time where some of these things are, are coming together. It's pretty neat. And David, verse 10, became greater and greater for the Lord. God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers of David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of of his people Israel. Now, this is where if you and I were writing a Bible that we wanted to manipulate and convince people to believe in, we would stop right there. David, great hero. He has battled the Philistines. He has battled the Amalekites. He has given grace. He's given forgiveness. He's now taken over this 500-year besieged city, made it Jerusalem, the city of David. This is it. Life is good. David's house is strong. He loves God. What does he do? In the next verse. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he'd come from Hebron and more sons of daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, you'll learn about that, and a host of other names. David is not allowed as a king of Israel to have all these women. In case you're thinking, oh, well, you know, when you're an eastern monarch, you could do this. You could have women and wives, concubines, have whatever you wanted That was all okay with other monarchs in areas, but not the king of Israel. It was very explicit in Scripture to say, you shall not be a lover of money and take on a bunch of wives. Don't. So how many children do we have? Did he have? We don't know. You just can't count wives. You have to count concubines. You have to count. He would, if you would see a pretty girl in a room, your mind come over. This is, I mean, and how the difference between how he wanted one as a concubine and one of a wife was probably her social standing. This man was having a lot of children, and you're thinking, wow, how could a guy go from being given all this godliness, all these wonderful things, to saying, you know what, I'm going to have whatever I want. And we still say this is a man after God's own heart. Isn't that interesting? But if we're not careful, we're going to just look at him and see a mess and look past our own mess. You and I are as big a mess as anybody. This nation of Israel has been brought together in a way that's like feeble. David is looking around trying to figure out how I'm going to keep it together. Any of you modern history guys know, or um, if y'all would study World War II, um, there's more ladies in here who love history than guys, I think, the way you share books with me. There's a, there was a country called Yugoslavia. It was formed by um, a resistance leader, Marshal Tito. He held this country together, and when he died, weeks after he died, it splintered off into, I mean, a handful of countries. Croatia, Serbia... Um, I forgot some of the other ones that came out of it. And guess what they started doing? They started killing each other. Within a decade, they were killing, I mean, we're talking over several million deaths in a country where they all got along. How did they get along? Because he held them together. The reality is, people that went to school together, saw each other together, all of a sudden they became deadly enemies. The same thing happened in Rwanda, where millions of people went on a killing spree at the drop of a hat, for hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years had gotten along, different tribes immediately went to war 
and blamed it on a war 500 years ago. And if you have that kind of internal mess, imagine what David is dealing with. And so this is, I'm not justifying why David's dealing with, deal, doing this with other women, but I'm drawn to a picture here. David goes after these women. Why? Because they're not going to talk politics. Because they're not going to talk this stuff. That's what sin does. It gives, you a, it gives you a place where you can go in and forget about reality. That is why pornography is a draw to so many people. Why? Because it's not really so much a desire for what they see. It's because there is no rejection. There's no failure in there. And so what happens is they, they go to that to forget where they are. It's not what, it's not what entices them. It's what they're escaping from. It's what they're running away from because there's a hurt and there's a pain and I just don't want to address it. So instead of David saying, what do I do and deal with it? He does what a lot of people do. Go after different vices. And his vices were a lot of women and a lot of wealth. And so we look at the last two sections of this chapter and we're going to see where David is again about having interaction with God. Verse 17. Totally different thought here, by the way. We're now, you got to remember, what we're reading here is encompassing months and sometimes years. So as this chronicle, when it looks like, wow, we just jumped a little bit. We're not sure the time frame that we just jumped, but we're jumping here. When the Philistines, remember, arch enemy of Israel, and the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to these Philistines? Will you give, me, give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Do me a favor. Go back to one more verse. Go back one more verse to verse 18. Um, whenever you see valley of, or hill of, or mountain of, I used to always just breeze through those. Don't. The reason those are important is that it usually dictates the military prowess of the people there. For instance, the Philistines were the only ones who had chariots. Chariot would have six to eight men in a chariot. You had battle chariots that would sometimes carry 10 to 12. That means you have two guys driving in case one gets killed, the other one takes over. You had massive amounts of horses. And the other guys were experts at flinging arrows or spears into their opponents. They also had, um, a, Steve, from, like, from me to you, would be a, a spinning um, wheel, almost razor blade sharp. So imagine you, you're, the Israel, you're the army of Israel and you walk out into the field and you see hundreds and hundreds of chariots and they start going full steam at you. They're ten times quicker than you. The men are protected by shields this high and they're just simply cutting down and dismembering large ranks of infantry. So whenever you see the valley of, that means that is the place where the chariots are going to do very well. That is why when you see the Jews fight, they're always fighting from a hill, from a mountaintop, from a high ground. Because they do not want to fight chariots and chariots can't make it up to that. So that is why when they spread out, you're looking at miles long, wide, or miles wide deep of chariots about to engage. And that is why David is freaking out in the next verse, in verse 19. And he looks and he says, Lord, what do I do? David inquires the Lord, he says, shall I go up to the Philistines? Will you give them into me in my hand? Because he knows if I fight them based on what I have, I'm going to be demolished. And the Lord said, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Verse 20. And David came to Baal-perizim, and David defeated them there. 
And he said, the Lord, has broken through my, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Balpirism. Verse 21. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David his men carried them away. Remember the Philistines had their idols when they were seafaring people? It was a fish. When they were like, oh, we like the land, they made the fish more like, they put, basically put feet on it and basically gave an image of um, I forgot the name of their god. They had a god, and I forgot the name of it. Anyway, it's out there somewhere. It's easy. You can Google it if you want. But um, they had this, they had this, these devices, and they would carry them. And when they left them there, and we got to remember, it's a big deal to leave their idols, and they just left them there. David goes in the field. It's pure victory. But three more verses, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out and where a valley, a refium. And David's thinking, they've gone down to Rephium, they're picking up the idols, and they look and behold what's back. As far as his eye can see, more chariots. And there they are in a valley, and David's men are going to be caught. And then David, what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come up against them opposite with the bolt." opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Hmm. Imagine for a second if we, went to Dave, if we went to God every time David went to God. But went to him like David went to God. The reality is you and I are often driven by our circumstances to pray. God, get me out of this situation. God, help me with this particular case. And last week we talked about what it meant to be proactive in praying. So you gear your, your spiritual immunity up. So when you do hit the storm, you are prayed up. But in this case, what's different about David is David prays according to the power of God. He doesn't say, God, what do I do? He says, God, should I go after him? God, should I retreat? God, should I move to the left, to the right? And a lot of times, if you're skeptical, or if you're a critic even, you're sitting there thinking, what a hypocrite. How can you sit there and lay with every woman you see and then want to go to battle and then do what you do, and then God gives you a victory, and you come back and you forget what God's done, and you're going back to your sin the very next day. Why would God even want to trust you? Because God has a promise with David that he has a promise with you and I. And even you and I are not that strong enough in our disobedience to break it. And that promise is this, that I will not leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise that we've not made to God, that he's made to us. And it's a promise that he holds up. And it's a promise he looks to us and he says, there is nothing you can do to break that promise. And so what do we do? We find functional saviors in our life and we're afraid to approach them. We don't read scripture because why? Well, we're afraid to read scripture because we don't feel like we've been living a good enough life. We haven't been praying enough. And why do you not pray? Because I've not been reading enough scripture. Why do you not give or serve? Because I've not been... And before you know it, you fall into a pit and you have fallen for an idol and you've fallen for a false god that's you. Be careful. 
Be careful what you seek, that you make it an idol. Be careful before you seek certain approval of certain people and say, that's who I want to be like. That's who I want to act like. That's who I want to, that's who I want to be, my friends. Be careful because you may be pursuing an idol. Be careful if you come into a church and walk into a church and, and forget who God is, that you make this church an idol. We have all of us functional saviors in our life that take the place of the savior of who Jesus is. And guess what they will do? I can guarantee you, ready? They will let you down. And they will forget you. And they will judge you. And you will see where you have put all of your power and all of your desire. But what's interesting is this. When you seek God with all you have, and let me back up. That sounds really, none of us really seek Him with all we have because we hold back, don't we? Insecurities, failures. How about this? When you seek God, are you seeking Him according to His power? You know, Alexander the Great, who conquered so much of the world, I mean, this guy went from Greece to Egypt. He was fighting. Uh, elephants in India. Imagine men came across elephants for the first time, didn't know what. Can you imagine the fear? Anywhere he'd go, he would go into the palace of the former ruler and he would set up and he would hold court. And people would come in there and they would ask things. It was called making petition. They would walk in and say, King Alexander, whatever they called him, would you give me, um, would you give my uncle freedom? He's in jail. Absolutely. I pardon him. Your uncle has freedom. Sir, would you pay off my debt? I owe 200 whatever. Go to the treasury, take 200 coins and pay it off. He would do this so he would show his power to the people. And so he would make friends with the people. Well, one day, this man comes up to King Alexander and asks him to enlarge his farm. He says he's a farmer. He's a good farmer. He said, I wish to have a farm. It was something like a thousand or... 10,000 acres, hectares of land. It was crazy. It was a huge amount of land. He said, may I have that land? And Alexander said, you may have the land. In order to scribe, to scribe out the, the deed and gave him that land. The officers of Alexander approached him later and said, why would you give someone so much? And Alexander's response was because that man honored me by the audacity of his request. He came to me according to the power and the wealth that I have, and I gave it to him. Now imagine a holy God who has built you, made you, a God that know everything will ever see, hear, touch, feel, learn about, think about, everything designed that we will all collectively know or individually know in our lifetime has been designed by a God who said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what if you can imagine any time, I'm not saying God's going to move balsam trees and make it sound like an army to every opponent you have, but there are still memories and notices where God moves in ways and you know it's him. You're going to have those moments and don't share them with anyone because they'll laugh at you. Don't ever ask me for mine. Because <laughs> you'll think, oh, you're preaching again. You know, there's, there's, God has ways of taking ex- ordinary things, an ordinary moment, and making it just for you. Making it for you. God has the ability to do that. 
And that's what I want you to concentrate on and think about is this, that God has the ability and the desire and the power to move when you approach him. And so anytime you're looking at David and going, why is David an example? Why is David an example? The example in this scripture is not David. It's, it's, it's God. It's the fact that that God is so good to David and so good to us. As much as I love the fact that, thank the Lord, there's a David. That we actually have a shot, right? <laughs> Colin said that to me at dinner one time. I'll never forget it. But, but the example is this. The example is God is there. I'm going to give you a brief... I'm, I can't, I, I'm so worried about telling you. It, so I, before, I, the property I live on used to be my, my aunt and uncle's, right? And I've told, you, I've told you all about it. They sold it in 2006. My uncle was not feeling well. Sold, sold the property. And I remember one day, Jeffrey Renner, a former student of mine, driving by. And it sat for eight years empty. The people who bought it, bought it. My aunt and uncle sold it right when the market was right here. Right here. I mean, at the very top. It sold in like a day. And people were going to build a subdivision. And all of a sudden, the next week, it collapsed. I mean, and so the bank took it. This bank went under. A bank took it. This bank went under. Another bank took it. They went under. And for eight years, sat empty. Jeffrey Renner, who grew up on a farm nearby, is driving by and calls me on Christmas Eve and says, Hey, Jake, there's a sign, there's a sign on the property. It's for sale. I'm like, what? It really is? How? Yeah. And so I call the realtor. Well, it's, you know, it's Christmas Eve. It's not really for sale. We're just, it's slow. We're putting signs up. It's going to go into market in January. And I mean, I'm panicking. I call people that I know. I'm like, come out here. We're praying. I got to, I mean, I illegally start a little campfire out there sitting in these chairs. Like, this is going to be it. And times are, everything's, go, I mean, I, if what I could do with this property for the glory of God. I mean, what I could do. And I hope you know I proved it over the last four years. I hope. I don't even live there, right? And yet, it is God's property. That's why you never hear say, my house, my property. And so, I thought, God, if you give me this thing, what I could do with it, I could park all the people in the world, not my neighbors complain. I could have functions and people get married. Come on, this is going to happen. I'm out there and call the place, the, the bank, and we're negotiating. Came in low because they're they're asking like one tenth of what my aunt and uncle sold it for. This is, I mean, God is delivering this. It's there. It's ready to go. And we make an offer and they accept. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know, anybody could come back with a bigger offer. Well, I'm out there one day walking some of the college guys through, like, isn't this awesome? Ever machetes and up rolls a golf cart. Those jacked up redneck golf carts with a big wheel, you know. And this guy comes up and he's got he's out there, he goes, Yeah, yeah, I love this land, I come here every day. I'm like, Yeah, it's like a park. Everybody's out there, right? Since it was abandoned. I said, Yeah, I said, I grew up out here. And you know, getting it back, we're like closing in two weeks. And this lawsuit goes, No, man, my buddy could buy this cash, man, like cash tomorrow. He, I'm like, What? And uh, he goes, Yeah, my buddy, he could, man, he could buy this thing up. I want it be home sites out. I'm like, are you, are you a demon or a prank? I don't know what you are. I'm like, bro, I know. I'm like telling the guy, no, you understand? I grew up out here. Like, I'm really praying about it. Like, and and uh, he just won't let up. And I, I'm like, I'm like walking away. Like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm checking this out. Like, he's calling his friend right in front of me. I'm like, are you serious? And uh, and finally, and, and the guys, I think they is uh, they they were. They got, if it wasn't for his kids in the golf cart, I think they'd have probably taken him out of the golf cart or something. And so I walk up to him. I don't know where this comes from. 
theologically off base, forgive me, just ask for forgiveness, delete it from the transcripts, whatever. I walk up and said, don't you mess this up? Don't you do anything to this? I said, I'm a preacher. I'm trying to bring this thing back for a church to use. You mess this up, I'll pray you into damnation. You understand me? And I'm like, you understand what's going on? And I mean, I'm trying to scare this guy. And forgive me, I meant nothing. There it is. I'm sorry, I apologize. And this guy, what did he do the next day? Had a whole survey crew out there. I mean, he's got, they brought their own survey team. There's his rich friend sitting in his $200,000 car, getting out with his pressed jeans. Who does that anyway? He's looking around. And I'm like, I'm like wanting to vomit. I'm like, this is, God has done this. I'm like, why would you do this? Why? I mean, this is, I'm not thinking of me. I'm thinking of what this place will be. I'm thinking of it. I just want, it's for you. It's for faces I haven't met yet. People that can't afford to get married at this place can get married here. 90th birthdays, wedding shower today, as a matter of fact, at three o'clock over there. All that can be what it can be. And this can be doable. Come on. The bank turned down their offer that was 250000 more than me. And I got out there. I, we never told the realtor who I was that I grew up out there because she was explaining, well, you know, this place has Cypress Street. And I'm like, man, I built more forts out there. I know what to do. I know that place. I pulled up, unlocked that gate as soon as we closed. I drove out there by myself and I parked. It was the most still day. I'm telling you, I'm getting to the point of saying this. I get, to the, I get out of my truck but I used to be a man and had a truck. Now I have a hybrid. You know? I get out of my truck and the trees, the pine trees, pine trees everywhere. The wind came up and they whistled. And they whoosh, it was like a waterfall rush. And I just, I'm telling you, charismatically started laughing and clapping, like just laughing. And it was a moment that I'll share with you there was a moment God and I had, and you probably sit there and go, yeah, that was a burst of wind that came in, and I'm sure it was. But God takes the ordinary and can make an extraordinary. And for me, I can identify with the balsam trees blowing in the wind, say a mighty army is going before me, that a mighty army went before me. And now this place will always be a place of refuge. A place of safety. A place where God reigns. Isn't it great that we have a God that came, are you ready for this? That came to a world that said, even our lame and blind will keep you away. The weakest of our weak. And what did God do? He said, give me your blind and give me your lame and bring them to me. Because I love them. No matter what anybody's ever said in your weakness, God loves you. No matter what you've ever done to fail him, God does not abandon you. No matter where you've ever been shyful in your request and bashful to say, God, I need a rescue, God is waiting. What a glorious God we save. Would you pray with me? Jesus.